Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change power and success in the world. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory there is no survival. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. You don't concentrate on risks. You concentrate on results. No risk is too great to prevent the necessary job from getting done. Is a quote from Chuck Yeager, a former United States Air Force officer, flying ace, and record-setting test pilot. In 1947, he became the first pilot confirmed to have exceeded the speed of sound in level flight. I thought the quote was apt in describing our guest today, who, like Chuck, is all about results. Today's podcast is not for the faint-hearted. It is matter-of-fact and colourful. It is about an engineer who built a global business from the garage in Australia, across 120 countries, and is still growing. In terms of a marathon, they're just doing the shoelaces up. The opportunity in front of them is enormous. This is a personal story about having the smarts, about hard work, courage, risk-taking, making some big calls, and having an insatiable appetite to learn. There's also a podcast that anyone who cares about their health should listen to. Our guest today is Dr. Peter Farrell, founder and executive chairman of ResMed, which has a dual listing on the New York and Australian Stock Exchanges. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, managing partner of Blenheim Partners Executive Search and Board Advisory Firm. In this episode, Peter's flown from the United States to join us in our Sydney studio and shares with us his journey from the academic to the businessman. We cover his views on decision-making, what actually is innovation, how to build the team, what is leadership, and some very clear thoughts on seizing the opportunity. And finally, in this very open discussion, we are challenged with some of Peter's thinking on the local and international social dynamics as well as the impact of political correctness and his questioning on climate change. So sit back and enjoy this very thought-provoking and wide-ranging conversation. Bureaucracy, that which turns energy into solid waste. Welcome to the show today, Professor Peter Farrell. Oh, well, thank you, Greg. You can call me Peter. I'm, I'm not offended. Thanks very much, Peter. Peter, <laughs> I've read about your, your background and incredible yep. life. Um, you want to talk us through just the, sort of the key highlights, early days, and how you built from now, those early days in the labs? Yeah, well, um, I thought, thought that I wanted to be an academic. And, um, I mean, I started off in, you know, Sydney University, did chemical engineering and worked in industry for a short period, like with Union Carbide, and I organised a uh, 
transfer to Montreal because there was a connection between the guys in Sydney and Montreal. I mean, it was personal connections. There was no reason for me to really go there except I sort of wanted to um, um, have a little experience outside the country. And so anyway, when I got there, there were a lot uh, better educated people and I thought, well, I'd better go and get a an advanced degree. And so I applied for a, to a few universities and uh, happily, I applied and got into MIT, which which is ranked as probably the best engineering school in the world. I may not have to say that, wouldn't I? No. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, um, but it is. It's right up. I mean, they've got nine Nobel laureates teaching there, which is a, right. bit, is a bit, yeah, a bit indicative. Um, anyway, I finished a master's degree there, and we were heading back. At that time, I had uh, two kids. We didn't have any health insurance when we were in Boston at that time, and then, then another one born in, in, in Boston, Paul. And both of them actually live in Sydney now. And they're both, you know, Kathy, the, the oldest one, she's a microbiologist, works for AstraZeneca in oncology. And the other guy did work for us, bought a business from us, and then we decided to get back into retail again. I mean, he took a failing business and turned it into um, a profitable business, and then we bought it back... Uh, for something like thirteen million, so it gave him a bit of flexibility, if you like. Anyway, he's now getting into the wine business, but I don't want to talk too much about my kids. <laughs> I'll get back to. So anyway, um, I uh, went to California, and we're, we're on our way back. And I said to my wife, who wanted to come back to Sydney, I said, "Look, you know, they invited me to keep, stay on the doctoral program at MIT, and I, and and um, Rosemary said, oh, well, you know, let's go back, take." The, kids back to Sydney and so forth and I said okay well let's you know we've got this job offer from Chevron in San Francisco so we'll just spend a year there and then go from there and while I was there I got a job offer back at MIT and so I went back and worked uh, as an industrial liaison officer which is in the office of the president but basically was to raise money for MIT which are uncommitted dollars right um, and you know various industry people like the big guys like the DuPonts and the Exxons and so forth gave money to MIT in order to get access to the campus. Right. And then you'd introduce them to various people. I mean, it wasn't for consulting. And if they wanted to consult with a, with a faculty member or whatever, that was a separate deal. So we, we didn't get involved in it. They just tell us that we're interested in, you know, astrophysics or whatever the hell it was, biomaterials and so forth. So we'd find the right people and introduce them to them. And then, then if they wanted to carry on with these people, fund something or whatever, that was up to them. There wasn't many Australians over at MIT at the time. Um, not 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 a huge number. I I guess I applied to MIT because one of the guys I was at Sydney University with his father ran Union Carbide in Australia, Murray right, okay. Freeman, and Murray had gone to MIT and uh, visited us in Montreal, and I thought, oh, you know, MIT sounds good, etc. So he he'd finished by the time that I went there, and um. I mean, it was, it wasn't like it was on the beaten track, but yep. it was, you know, a lot of our textbooks came from MIT. Okay. And so it was something that we knew about it and so on. Um, so you're on the way back to Australia? Yeah. And then I got this job offer and I went back there and ended up going back to MIT to work. In, and it was kind of a job that uh, this industrial liaison thing, which I was describing before, I mean, it just didn't suit me. It was kind of like setting up meetings. And I mean, I, I would meet a couple of Nobel laureates over lunch and this sort of thing, but um, it wasn't satisfying. And I decided, no, I want to become an academic. So I reapplied to MIT and got a, a PhD scholarship. 
but it's a, it was a bit complicated. It takes a, a bit longer than other places because you had to take so many courses and then you had doctoral exams and then you had had to come up with your thesis program and so on and so forth. And it takes about nine months before you actually get into your, your actual research. So I applied to Penn and the University of Washington because when I was doing a master's thesis at MIT, we were interested in membrane transport, you know, in, in artificial kidneys, how quickly things transfer through the, the membrane and so on and so forth. And all the clinical work was done at the University of Washington in Seattle. So I thought, well, I'll throw my hat in the ring there. And a guy called me up from there and uh, he was the head of bioengineering or nuclear engineering, but it had a, a bioengineering program. And he said, uh, uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts? What do you think you're doing? And I said, well, you know, we've got an apartment here in Boston and I'm re-upped here. And he said, well, what are they offering you? And I said, oh, whatever it was. Um, it was a pittance. But, um, and they said, uh, okay, well, if you sign up here, we'll double it. I said, oh. I said, Okay. And and they and he said so. What's the program to, to for your PSM? And what what? How soon is it? How soon can you get on to your your research? And so I described that. And he said, Oh, he said that's a bit that's a bit drawn out. He said, Look, tell you what, you come here, you do one semester of courses, and if it maps what your GPA, your grade point average at MIT is, you can go straight into your thesis. Right. Okay. So so it's like three months max, and I'm I'm into the research. So I said, well, that's pretty attractive and talked to my wife and we decided, yep, that makes sense. So I went there and worked like a drover's dog, literally. And anyway, I got straight A's and so I went straight on the program and I'm literally working weekends and so forth and finished my PhD in about 18 months and then I got a junior professorship there. Um, and then out of the blue, I had somebody from UNSW contact me and they said, listen, um, we're interested in starting a program in medical engineering as opposed to biomedical, but it was basically the same thing. Right, okay. So I, we ended up coming back here. That was in the you know mid-70s, 73 or whatever. And so I started lecturing and, and then eventually became the inaugural director of the Graduate School for Biomedical Engineering, which is now the Graduate School for Biomedical Engineering. And... I that was um, towards the end of the 70, 78, I guess it was. And then I was getting a little bit sick of academe, to be honest. I mean, I'd, I'd raised some money. Baxter Healthcare in Chicago was funding a certain amount of our work. We had funding from Asahi Medical in Japan and so forth. So I was able to, to fund PhDs and masters and PhD students and so forth. Anyway. Um, and were you cutting edge in what you were delivering? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, when you're publishing papers in peer-reviewed journals, yep. you, the people need to know if you can shoot straight. Yeah. Um, and and you need to get published, and otherwise yeah. the guys aren't interested in if you're not publishing stuff that's leading edge, yeah. if you like. So that went well, and then I I, um, I just got a bit fed up with, with uh, the bureaucracy. And I actually, I took a sabbatical at UCSF, the University of California, San Francisco, which is basically the medical school of Berkeley, but it's in the city okay, yep. uh, as opposed to being across the bay. We were living in a place called Twin Peaks, and I was running up the uh, up to Twin Peaks, which is the highest peak in San Francisco. I used to try to do that every second day, and and as I was uh, coming up to the, the end of the – and it was a pretty steep hill, and there was a Volkswagen Combi with this bumper sticker on, which it's very hard to forget, bureaucracy, that which turns energy into solid waste. 
it's it's perfect. It's perfect. And and any big organization, that's what you run into. So I I got sick of the bureaucracy. Um, I mean, they weren't bad people. It was just that you know the, a lot of time wasting, and at least it was before all this crap on diversity and inclusiveness and so forth, and the virtue signalling. Um, and and we don't we don't play that game because gee guess what we've got three women on our board and they're there not because they're good looking they're there because you know they actually can contribute something and we we've got all cultures all religions etc and everybody's on the same playing field you do the job you get paid you do the job very well you get paid better than the other person whether they're male female Calathumpian Catholic or Jewish. And uh, if at a certain level you get stock options and so forth, so we we don't play those sort of games. It's it's performance. Okay. Anyway, uh, so um, so the bumper bar was a revelation. Well, I mean, you, you you sort of knew it, but it was a beautiful way to put it. Baxter approached me and they said, "Listen, uh, we want to set up." And I I was dealing with the people in Baxter over many years because they were funding the research, etc. And uh, one of the, the president of, of Baxter International happened to be in Sydney and he wanted to catch up with me. And he said, listen, <clears throat> we've been looking at um, our Japanese business and we want somebody to go there and clean up. We've got a bit of a mess going on in R&D, research and development. We'd like somebody to go in there and clean it up and we'd like to offer you the job. Okay. And I said, oh, vice president of R&D, Baxter Healthcare Japan. And he said, and you'd be on the board uh, there. And I said, oh, well, initially I, w- I was thinking, yeah, maybe that's okay. And then I thought, well, wait a minute, I'll take a sabbatical. And it, and it fitted in with when I was getting fed up with the bureaucracy anyway. So I thought, well, what the hell, I'll, I'll just take a, a year and uh, sign up with these guys and fen- sit on the fence, you know, and if I, I don't like what's going on, I can say, hey, listen, it's not working out for me and go back and get back into the uh, bureaucracy. Um, anyway uh it was kind of a huge learning experience let me tell you because i didn't speak any japanese i speak a little bit now but anyway it was um you know like a hundred like something like 40 people and a hundred projects i mean it was just insane so i had to come up with a system how we got rid of some of this chaff and got got it down to maybe 20 that may be achievable etc anyway that was a good experience and so i i actually lived there for 18 months and and so I ended up getting a a visiting professor, honorary visiting professor or whatever they call it, but anyway, visiting professor back here at UNSW because they didn't have to pay me a nickel. Um, So that was was a a good deal. And I I lived, uh, I came back from Tokyo at the end of 18 months and uh, they asked me to continue as head of the graduate school for biomedical engineering because they didn't have to pay me a nickel. I mean, it was a great deal for them. So I, I, it was a funny deal. We, I set up, I got some money out of Baxter or, or got a commitment from Baxter to build a, a building on the UNSW campus. It was a, boy, was that a crazy story? But anyway, so the way it was done was this, and it was 10 million bucks for the building, basically. And we selected the, the architects. And um, the idea was to to build the building, and I sold it to Baxter. I said, listen, we're going to have to pay rent anyway at this place. So if you look at the rent plus CPI and so forth, you know, pretty soon, you know, within X number of years, that $10 million will be, you know, it'll be paid back. If yeah, you right. Like. Yeah. So the building, um, 
and we were going to put the Baxter Centre for Medical Research, and and so this is how this is the forerunner of um, the forerunner of, of Resmed, if you like. They said, well, okay, if you're going, if you're leaving Japan, but I, I'm leaving, if you stop living in Japan, why don't you set up the Baxter Centre for Medical Research in Sydney while you're still running the Japanese activities? Right. And I'd go up there like one week a month. Okay. And I'd fly up because it's it, you're crossing lines of latitude, so it's a longitude. It's like a one two hour time change yeah. depending on winter or summer. And so I'd go up on a on a Monday night, pay a hundred bucks from the airport from Narita into the city, take a shower, and then I'd go to a board meeting. And uh, the shacho there, the president was, you know, all he talked about was the the building and the the TV and the audio visual and so forth. And I suggested, hey, maybe we could talk about some numbers. Does that <laughs> sound crazy? <laughs> Anyway, you know, how's the business going? Anyway, uh, that was kind of a funny experience. So, anyway, the the mission of the Baxter Centre for Medical—that's well, coming from an academic, too. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I'd I'd worked a bit in industry and 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 had a bit of exposure, if you like. But the Baxter Centre for Medical Research—the mission was look for low-hanging fruit that Baxter's financial and marketing muscle can take to world markets. Okay. But if you find something. You've got to have receptors within Baxter that are interested in it because we weren't going to do, you know, all the product development, the manufacturing, the sales, marketing worldwide. I mean, it was, we just didn't have the resources to do that. So we could do, we could do the prototypes, we could do the product development and then work with, with, with one of the other divisions and say, Hey, listen, we've come across this. Are you interested? That was the first thing. Yes, we are. And then you can vertically integrate because if they're already in that game and using right. buying somebody else or subcontracting it, yep. then if you vertically integrate it, it's obviously going to be a lot cheaper mm-hmm. potentially. Mm-hmm. And you've got much more control. Um, so, and we were doing a lot of gene jockey stuff initially. Um, and this is the late eighties now. Um, uh, we were doing acute myeloid leukemia in Adelaide with a, a hematologist there called Chris Jutner. We were working with Tom Mandel and Gus Nossel at Walden Eliza Hall in Melbourne right. on porcine pig uh, islet cells for treating diabetes. And um, I mean, they were doing the research and we were sort of funding some of the work. And then I had a global role in the kidney area because I had you know a few published papers and knew most of the key guys, whether it's Oxford or Edinburgh or... Tokyo or blah, blah, blah. So <clears throat> anyway, the genesis of ResMed was um, there's a buddy of mine that I was at Sydney University with as an undergrad, Chris Lynch. Chris um, had come back from the UK and had a you know some further qualifications at the University of London or whatever, and he, he came back to Sydney, took a job. Um, I won't mention with the guy, but the guy that used to sail Sydney to Hobart yacht races and so forth. And we're having a drink, and I said, "How's how are things going?" He said, "Oh God," he said, "It's just terrible." He said, "I feel like he said I'm the bag man for this guy," and I said, "Oh, it's not so good." And so I said, "I'm not happy." He said, "No, she's no." I said, "Well, listen, are you dumb enough to work with me?" <laughs> um, and and he said, "Oh, I don't know anything about medicine." And I said, "The good news is you don't have to." I tell you, I'll, I'll give you a handful of papers, and you come back with a list of questions. And I said, "The thing about medicine is," I said, "If you." I said, you're a chemical engineer and you, you you understand thermodynamics and kinetics, the rate of change. I said, most of these guys in medicine, they'll say your urea level's X or your creatinine level's X, and they don't ask the question, well, gee, how quickly did it get there? I mean, you could get a Nobel Prize in medicine for, for talking about, gee, that went quickly. 
Well, it was pretty slow, so I don't think we got much to worry about. Anyway, I'm exaggerating a little bit. It was, it was almost like that. Okay. So he came back and he said, gee, this is not, you know, this is not rocket science. And I said, so I told you. So he joined me and he came to me one day and he said, uh, listen, there's a guy over at the University of Sydney Medical School. His name's Colin Sullivan. And uh, he's just come back from, he's a pulmonologist, but he's just come back from three years at the University of Toronto working with some guru over there, a respiratory physiologist called Elliot Philipson, whom I later met. And Elliot was about the size of Milton Friedman, about five feet, nothing. And uh, and it turned out he was a pretty smart guy writing editorials for the New England Journal of Medicine and so forth. Anyway, I didn't know who the hell he was at that time. So, and, and he said, the guy's treating snoring sickness with a reverse vacuum cleaner. And I said, oh, come on, mate, this is insane. You know, I felt like a cockroach that had been sprayed and I was on my back with my feet up. And, and anyway, so he said, no, honestly, he said. Serious? Yeah, yeah. And he said, the guy seems credible. And I said, snoring sickness, yeah, come on. Anyway, so I went over to see him, Colin, and he said, I want you to sit in that chair and I'm going to show you a video. And I said, okay. And this is long before YouTube and so forth. And so the, the June of 1986 this was. So 33, you know, 33 years ago, almost exactly. So I sat in the chair and he showed me this guy on his back, like a sumo wrestler going. <laughs> anyway, I watched a series of these and he said, that's an apnea where the upper airway is closed and the oxygen levels drop. Right. Anyway, he had Hewlett-Packard tracings of blood pressure and heart rate. So the guy would go into an apnea, everything had dropped down, and then, then he'd explode, like two to three times increase in blood pressure and heart rate. Boom! And I watched a series of these, and he said, do you think that's good for him? And I said, I'll tell you what, why don't we move to the next question? <laughs> anyway, um, so then he slapped this Darth Vader mask on him, like impaling the guy, like it's it like an inverted toilet seat, and you, and you put it on like this, and still leaking? How's that? And I, I looked at this and I said, you know, what, what are you doing here? He said, oh, he said, this is pretty simple. He said, all we're doing, he said, the, the insight here is that we don't cover the mouth because positive airway pressure had been around in ICUs, you know, and ERs for 60, 70 years at that time. And everybody knew if you put a, a face mask on somebody and you pressurize it, you can get fluid out of the lungs and around the pleura of the heart. And it's much better than a diuretic. I mean, you, you pressurize it and the thing goes out and you pee it out, pee the fluid out. And he said, this is, we've got, we got a mask on, but the mouth is not covered and it's easier for the patient. And he said, everybody thinks the air is going to blow out of the mouth. And, of course, it starts to, but it's so inconvenient and you dry your mouth out and you automatically close it. Right. But, and therefore you can make these things much smaller. So that, that was his insight and he patented it. So... I, I said, uh, and I'm coming from Baxter because, and you know, I'm talking about the dialysis business. Well, with a prevalence of 0.2% of people with kidney disease, we had a business which was a billion dollars. Is that right? At that time. And so... Um, 1983. In 1986. 86, sorry. Yeah. 86, yeah. Or, you know, it was like 20% of Baxter's revenue. They were around 5 billion. Okay. Um, and so, and I said to him... Uh, well, how big do you think this area is? And he said, oh, I, I don't know. But he said, it's got to be at least 2% of the population. So as an MIT-educated engineer, I went 0.22 2 
billion, 10 billion. I thought, even if it's 5 billion, this is worth getting, getting into. And he said, so he said, look, it's pretty simple. He said, all we're doing is pressurizing the nares here. And he said, and the pressure is about 10 centimeters of water. And I said, God, well, atmospheric pressure is like 760 millimeters of mercury, but you convert it to centimeters of water. It's about a thousand at sea level. So this is 1% of atmospheric pressure. So the first message to me was, the only way you can get injured by this thing is to pick it up and smash the guy over the head with it. Yeah, right. I mean, pretty safe as a medical device. And 2% of the population, I said, wow. And I, but he said, but let me stress this. This is a treatment. It's not a cure. The guy has to wear this every night. And I said, oh, you've got to be kidding. Yeah, right. And and he had this Hitachi. He sourced the, the blower was Hitachi in Japan, and you could barely lift the thing. It was like 80 pounds, and you could have run your swimming pool on it. <laughs> And it sounded, it honestly, it sounded like a freight train. And I, I said, and I said, the guy wears this every night. So I said, how many people have you got on this? He said, oh, similarly, he said, we've got this Swiss engineer, Jim Bruder, he's out in the back there and we get these bespoke masks. And, and I mean, universities can't do product development. I mean, you can do conceptual stuff. Okay. There's no way they could turn it into a business, obviously, but we could. Anyway, so I, um, I said, uh, okay, but smoke mask. And, and, and he said, no. I, I said, I found that with this noise. And he said, no. He said, we, the guys, you know, they feel so much better. So he calls this patient in, and his name was Eddie Merck. And he, he came, he's about my body mass index, around about 26 kilograms per square meter. And Eddie had welts on his cheeks with this mask was digging into him and a bit of necrosis of the bridge of his nose with a, this thing rubbing on his nose. And I said, Eddie, um, I said, oh, yeah, a bit of a pain in the bum, but a bit of Vaseline. And I said, well, oh, gee, okay. <laughs> I said, and, the, and the, I said, the, 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 the blower, the pump, I said, it's, it's like a freight train. I mean, he said, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, so what I did was I, I moved my bed to abut the garage. I drilled a hole in the wall and I put the, 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 the device, the blower out with the car. And I said, whoa, gee. I said, I'm still not getting this. He, I, he said, and he said, okay, he said, let me tell you what my life was like. He said, I'd go to bed for 10 hours. I'd get up in the morning, groggy. I'd go to breakfast. I'd fall asleep at breakfast. I'd go out to the garage. I'd hop in the car. First set of traffic lights, I'd nod off. The guy behind me had toot. That's how I went into work. I got into work. I couldn't sit in a chair. I'd go into spontaneous rapid eye movement sleep. He said, I spent the whole day wandering around, not doing a tap of work. And I said to him, what's the name of the company? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, and he said, and then I came home the same way I went in, stopping it, nodding off a trailer. Couldn't go to the opera, movies, dinner with friends, whatever. We were locked at home. And then I go to bed and he said the same thing. He said, I felt like a zombie. He said, the first night I went on this, I dreamt for the first time in 15 years. Wow. And I woke up in the morning. I didn't fall asleep at breakfast. I didn't fall asleep at the traffic light. And for the first time in years, I was able to do a tap of work. I said, again, I said, what's the name of that company? Anyway, so, and he said, and then I drove home. And, and he said, and I didn't, I didn't nod off one night. He said, bottom line, I'd sleep on hot coals if I could get this result. And I said, oh, okay. And there was a guy I worked with at Baxter, and his name was Will Peary. And Will said, um, he, Will told me, and this, this was in Irvine, California, and he said to me, whenever you get into something new, Peter, 
make sure you do the fatal floor first test, the FFF test. Get to the boundary condition where you hope the puppy's going to work. Get there for minimal amount of money, minimal amount of time and effort. And if it works under those, you know, extreme conditions or boundary conditions, put the big bucks in and start and, and start cracking. So I thought, well, I'm there with this thing. So I put Baxter's money into it, and uh, and it took us, you know, it was like dealing with Oxford in the 11th or 12th century, but we finally got a deal with the university um, and uh, were able to take the, the technology out and so forth, and we cut a deal with Colin and sort of gave, he got quite a few shares and he ended up doing extremely well out of it, I might say, like multi-million dollars, although he thought he should get everything, but we said, well... You know, that's not going to happen, but we'll do the best we can for you, Colin. Anyway, um, and I'm sitting in my office. So we, 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 we built a better prototype and, and we got, got away from this Hitachi blower into our own local one and we sourced the motors in Melbourne. And I mean, it wasn't wasn't a great device, but it was a lot better than, than this gargantuan you know, swimming pool thing. And then we started um, manufacturing masks, silicon masks, and um, much smaller and quieter and so forth. And we still had a long way to go, but we had something that was functional. And Colin, uh, Colin's uh, wife was a shrink, and she had, and she was a paediatric uh, psychiatrist. And uh, one of her friends from South Africa was a paediatric psychiatrist, married to um, this this guy um, who was a business guy. And so they'd have dinner together with the families and so forth. And Colin talked this guy into setting up a sleep lab. Right. So they set up a sleep lab. Uh, Gordon Simon was one of the guys. Anyway, they they started the sleep lab, but they didn't want to get into manufacturing because they thought this is a great way to lose your shirt. Correct. And particularly if you weren't if you weren't you know um, experts at GMP, good manufacturing practices, etc. So they didn't want to touch it. Right. So. We, so we were the obvious people with Baxter. Anyway, I'm sitting in my office one day in, in Sydney and uh, reading a trade publication. I think it was Clinica. I look up, Baxter sells off respiratory home care division. I went, the hell? This is the division for which we were developing this thing for. So I, get, I, get, I fly to Chicago, sit down with some of the senior guys there, and I said, look, this, this thing is worth, um, I think it's worth saving. Um, and, you know, the, now we've sold off the division we're manufacturing it for, but I think this could be potentially a $10 million sales in three or four years. And they just bought American Hospital Supply for $3 billion to turn Baxter into a $5 billion company, and they're yawning. They're saying, gee, $10 million. wow, that's great, Pete. And so I thought, hmm, okay. So I'm flying back, and I thought, we're going to have to buy this damn thing. So the, the good news was that they didn't want me consulting for Asahi Medical or Fresenius or Gambro or the other artificial kidney manufacturers. So they signed me up for a five-year consultancy at hundred grand a year, which wasn't bad in 1989. And so I could pay myself coolie wages. And and David Greaterex was a guy. He was one time chairman of the State Bank of New South Wales, etc. And I went to see him and I said, David, we've got to raise some money. And he said... Um, Okay, I'll introduce you to some people. And he said, and I'll put some money. And I think he said, I'll, I'll put in 50 grand or something. And I said, well, David, I'm talking money. I mean, you know, like maybe a million. <laughs> anyway, so I should step back a bit. So when we wanted to take this uh, to the business out of Baxter because it was going to die on its backside, mm-hmm. 
they said, okay, we'll put it, give it to our guys who are, you know, the M&A guys, and, and we were back and forth. Six months worth of us spending money on lawyers and accountants and, that, and Baxter was doing the same thing, although they could afford it a lot more than we could. And yeah, right. I was getting a bit frustrated. So I finally called the president of Baxter, Jim Tobin, got him in his office, and I said, Jim, this is just crap. I mean, how can something like this, I mean, a simple transaction, take, you know, six months? I mean, it's insane. He said, okay, what do you want to do? And I said, okay, you guys have 30% equity. We have 70%, but everybody pays for their shares. It's all above board, all transparent. And he says, no equity. I said, no equity. I said, oh, okay, all right. I said, okay, then, and I, you know, on a dime, I said, okay, well, we'll give you half a million bucks up front, and then we'll give you a 5% royalty net profit after, uh, 5% of net profit after tax for the next 100 years or whatever, anyway, extended period. And he says to me, okay, under one condition. And I said, well, what's that? He said, well, you're next, when you're next through Chicago, I want you to buy me a beer. And I said, well, wait a minute, Jim. Are we talking import or domestic? <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was literally, it was done in three weeks. Are you serious? Yeah, three weeks it was done, all, all done. They were signed the consultancy agreement and then they gifted a whole bunch of, you know, whiteboards and, a couple hundred grand's worth of stuff and they wrote it down to 10 grand so that we wouldn't have to pay tax on it. Okay. They, they must have been happy to get rid of us. You're right. Um, anyway, uh, and, and they didn't have to talk about sleep-disordered breathing uh, anymore. So uh, off we went. So we, we Chris Lynch and I got a business plan together and uh, David introduced us to, to John Plummer and um, we we were paying, we paid 50 cents for our, our shares, and we wanted a, uh, an increase of about a dollar fifty on the shares for for outsiders. You know, we wanted to sell them for like two bucks with with a when we we're paying fifty cents, and you know, like where the guys are they're in the saddle and going to make it happen. Yeah. So John was sitting down there, and he, he'd read the business plan. And he said, "Listen, um, I think you, that's a bit rich that share premium you're asking for. You know, buck fifty. We said, "Oh, okay." He said, I, I think it'd be fairer to, you know, like a, let's say a dollar 25, maybe 175. And we said, yeah, no, no, no problem. So he said, well, okay, what I'll do is I'll give you, you want a million? He said, I'll give you, I'll give you a million, but it'll be half a million will be equity and half a million will be uh, a loan. And it was a 13%. I mean, it was bone jarring interest rates at that yeah, time. Right. And we said, oh, yeah, okay, okay, John, yeah, no problem. So that was how we how we got going. So at thirteen percent, yeah, yeah. Well, some- we wanted to get rid of it, at, you know, as quickly as we could, but yep. we didn't have much choice. I mean, it's like so with Baxter using Baxter's money. At least we probably spent a you know million and a quarter or something like that in the, developing the prototype and the masks and so forth. Okay, right. And then we found a you know, place out in North Road and where it, literally a garage, and we we started to. You know, assemble. You know, we call it manufacturing, really assembly, because we were subcontracting a lot of the stuff. And the first year, which was 1990, so a year ended June 30. Yes. So we started in 89, August 89, and June June 30. The first year, we did about a million in revenues and lost 250. And most of that was 90 percent was Australia. And then then the next year. Uh, we did uh, two million and lost one fifty, and the third year we did four million and made four hundred k. That's nineteen ninety two. So ninety ninety one ninety two, and and 
we've been cash flow positive ever since that time. And what's the scale of the business now? You want to talk us through the growth? Yeah. Well, we we um, we kept growing the business at about a hundred percent. So we, we then we did eight million, and then we started to slow down a bit. And we went to like fourteen million. Uh, you know, instead of sixteen, we're sort of a hundred percent fourteen. So we're slowing down a bit, but I mean, it wasn't. There was still growth. I mean, plenty of growth. Um, and then we decided to 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 float it. So Macquarie were in the equation and some of the local banks. And anyway, we we went um, to the US and it was a company then Robinson Stevens in San Francisco. And anyway, they were offering a PE of 17 versus a, a PE of 12 back here. Right. I mean, where are you going to raise the money? I mean, it's, it's like 50% more for the same share. Yeah, right. And and we went uh, we went public at 85 million. 85 million? Yeah. And uh, today. How much did you buy it for? Uh, the total was about a million, million and a half. And how many years later had you floated it? Um, that was that was 80, 90, 95, so six years later. At eighty five. Yeah. Today we're US dollars. Our market cap is nineteen billion. Our revenues are two point six billion US dollars. Is that right? And we make eighteen percent net income to revenues. Which is stunning. So our stunning. our gross margin is fifty nine percent. We're in one hundred and twenty countries, but it's it's the US is number one with about one point six billion. Then we then Germany, which is about one hundred eighty four, one hundred eighty five million. France is about one hundred and seventy eight million, and Japan's about one hundred and ten, one hundred and twenty. Then you've got the UK being around seventy three, four million, and Australia around seventy three, seventy four million. So, so, I mean, that, so is, the original number of two percent, yeah, was pretty accurate. Oh, oh, oh uh, no. Well, it, that's not even close. You still got so much more. Oh, the runway. We, we, it's kind of like a marathon, and we're lacing our shoes. This is. We started with six people. We've now got seventy-two hundred, and we're in one hundred and twenty countries. But the U.S., Germany, France, Japan, are about eighty percent of our business. And then if you throw Australia and the UK in there, you're 85. So, uh, and our fastest growth areas like China and India, but from a very small base. And Peter, is it still the one product, or is there is the business? You want to talk us through like ResMed, and what is that diversified at all? Or yeah, well, we we um, you, you know the uh, COPD is a big area, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Uh, there's no cure. And uh, at least a third of the people have sleep disorder breathing. So if you put these people on non-invasive ventilators, so we make portable ventilators as well. Okay. And some of them are life support. Most of them are non-life support. Like the people at home could be ALS, you know, acute uh, or sort of uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, uh, multiple sclerosis. I mean, people that have that have severe breathing problems right. and you support them at night, open up the airway, et cetera. So you're tr- treating the sleep apnea as yes. well as, as reducing the work of breathing and, and actually ventilating them. And we, we, to give you an idea of scale, we sell 1.2 million masks a month and about 325,000 devices every month. So you don't want to recall if you can avoid it. No, you do. Right. And we had one and we called it on ourselves back in 2007 and uh, it was one of these things we were get sourcing printed circuit boards from Taiwan, and we had this engineer with an MBA, PhD MBA, 
and I kept pressuring him. I said, you know, we've got to get this goddamn product out there. And um, he took that very seriously. And the PCBs, uh, we, we changed, the design was changed. And instead of having a flexible connection to the plug, they decided to make it, they hardwired it into, you know, pretty smart, huh? So every time you pull the thing in and out, you'd weaken, weaken the connection. Oh. And about seven devices out of 300,000 had a flame coming out the back. So you know you'd have to have you you and it was very low temperature. We had we had fire experts come in, very low temperature flame, but you know the possibility was if you had your machine up near your polyurethane polyester yes. curtains, yeah right, you could set the house on fire. Right, okay. And so and what what triggered us? So we did some estimates. You know it was going to cost us millions of dollars to to get because by this time our business is mostly out outside Australia. Yeah. I mean, like 95% of it. And um, I had a call from a physician in Oklahoma, Jonathan Schwartz, and he said, Peter, you know, what the hell is going on with the machine? You know, I mean, you, you know, you guys are known for quality. And I said, yeah, Jonathan. He, he, I said, let me get back. He said, I, he said, this is not the resmit I know, you know, when he heard that. And I said, okay. So we just had a got in the huddle. I said, we're going to have to have a recall. So we told the FDA and we're, we're doing a voluntary recall. And we ended up probably getting 120,000 back. I mean, people, it's like somebody calls up, you know, your Lexus, you know, something wrong with the steering or mm. whatever. And can you bring it in and you know, whatever? I'll, I'll do it when we get service or something. I mean, people just don't treat these things seriously as you would like them to, but yeah. it still cost us $64 million. So we took a, yeah, we took a big hit to the bottom line. But, but if it's a one-off thing, the market doesn't punish you that much. Yeah. Um, and so, anyway, we did that move forward and, and changed the design, and, and that was uh, that was pretty unfortunate. But you know, I've learned in, in this game you need a very high tolerance for bad news, and uh, particularly in, in the startup years, um, stuff that you think's coming through that doesn't come through, etc. Peter, why hasn't anybody um, copied your product? Oh well, they have. We, we've got Philips is a, actually Philips is a gift from God. They bought our competitor, and we, we weren't the biggest. Now we're in sleep. We're the biggest in, in the on the planet these days. Uh, but the other guy, Respironics, based in Pittsburgh, was bigger, and they 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 Philips bought them out, which is a gift, literally a gift from God. So, you know, some of the guys left because they were cowboys. And, you know, the Dutch being very rigorous and so on and so forth. So a lot of guys found the, they didn't like the culture. And so some, some actual good people left. And, and happily for us, uh, a lot of the lemons stayed behind, uh, screwing up the business. So that was, uh, that was great for us. But the, together, the two of us would have um, 85% of the world's market. But you still, I mean, the Chinese, I mean, the Chinese, you know, the good thing about the Chinese guys when they copy you, and of course they do, and there's no point in going to court there because you'll never win. Yeah, right. But uh, the good news is that bits generally fall off them when you wash them. And so, and I mean, they'll eventually get it right, but by the yeah. time we've morphed on to the next thing. Right. So we've, over the years and over the last 18 months to two years, we've, we've bought two million bucks worth of uh, software companies. So we've actually morphed into a SaaS. So we're okay. really now software as a service. And so we're into skilled nursing facilities, hospice, and senior living. 
and we haven't even costed nearly all those people have sleep apnea and we haven't even costed that in there. So once we start, and we're managing these these things now, so the, the, so we're, we're integrating all these software things into two companies basically. So we've got a you know a guy, healthcare informatics is is huge, and our devices, every one of our device goes up devices goes up into the cloud. Is that right? So we now have four point five billion nights worth of data. I mean MIT was coming to us and saying, hey, listen, but we're working now with Google with Verily. Oh yeah, yeah, and so they're doing the AI yeah, stuff yeah. for us. I don't know if we're going to win with that, but you know we we've got other options. But so it this is. And we have 10 million patients every day chuffing stuff up into the cloud. And what we're planning on doing is taking these devices and you've got these wearable sensors now, mm-hmm. which can do oxygen, pulse, potentially do um, blood pressure, and you Bluetooth that into your, your box. So not just sleep data, you know, how long did you sleep, how much slow wave sleep, etc. Did you have a mass leak, etc. We collect all that stuff. And the patients, have. we have this... Um, Software program my air, so they can check their own, their own how they're they're doing. I mean, they may think they know what they're doing, um, and it's like asking a patient, "Do you snore?" No, and the wife says, "What do you mean? Of course you snore." She's going to the next zip code, anyway. <laughs> um, but so I mean, it's very unreliable asking people how they're doing. I mean, you know, are you better than? Oh, you're better than yesterday. Oh, yeah, better than the day. Oh, yeah, yeah. I just keep getting better every day. You know, I mean, it's just it's just uh, qualitative nonsense. You know, it's too much noise. So you you've got you really need hard data, and so we've we've got that. And I think the the most we paid was eight hundred million US dollars for a company called Brighttree. But what we do, we're, we're now we're integrated through the system, so we're dealing with all the payers, United Health and Anthem, uh, okay, and, right, and 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 so forth. And so we're getting the payment for these guys, and we charge per patient per month. And we can we can put it up like two to five percent per year. I mean, it's a gravy train because they're so locked in with us yep. that. But what we're doing is we're reducing their their unreimbursed costs. Yeah, right. Because they'd have to hire a phalanx of people on the phone, yep. and every one of these healthcare insurers has a different system. Right. What do you want me to fax over? Can I email it to you? Oh no, or maybe, or or you want a fax and an email? Okay, so they have to hire all these people just sitting on phones and. And that's all they do. So the software does it all. And the interesting thing is that the co-pays, they weren't getting any co-pays because they'd have to have a phalanx of people calling up and saying, hey, listen, you owe us 150 bucks. Oh, okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll put the check in the mail. Hey, excuse me, you still have... And, and, you know, they were getting almost none. I mean, okay. a few percent. 50, it went almost immediately shot up to 50% with, with the software packages. Right? Well, they just don't give up. They're, they're just, it's like, this, geez, that goddamn thing. It's that son of a bitch again calling about the, yeah, send the check out, will you? You know, you know what I mean? You yeah. just keep harassing people. Yeah. So that, that's working uh, quite well. Can I ask you something? How did you go from, I guess, the transition is from being the, the engineer yep. to, you know, like you said, you're in the back of that garage, was it right? Then suddenly, to this businessman. So you talk us through that sort of that development of yourself yeah, I think and, how, and who do you surround yourself with? Well, you have to have good people and you have to have a good culture. Um, and uh, so I think as an engineer, and what do you do? You solve problems and uh, and you don't want to spend too much in solving the problem. So you, you've got to watch, you, you, you've got to be uh, very disciplined about spending. I mean, I do dumb things with my money, but you don't want to do dumb things with shareholders' money. 
So we were fairly disciplined in, in the way we'd spend things, and we, we really went hard at the R&D. And the thing is, people talk about entrepreneurship as being risk-taking. Kiss my bum. <laughs> it's got almost nothing to do with risk-taking. It's opportunity-seeking. You know, if you're inside the tent looking out, it's different from the guys outside the tent looking in who think you're a, a, an idiot. So you see a little bit further over the horizon, but it's opportunity-seizing, and you've got to be disciplined about it. You know, is there really business there? And Andy Grove um, was a big influence on us, um, and Peter Drucker, Peter F. Drucker, yep. you know, innovation and entrepreneurship. Yep. And entrepreneurship is opportunity-seeking, and innovation only occurs when somebody writes a check. No check, no innovation. It can be creative, it can be imaginative. Unless you deliver something into the marketplace and it solves somebody's problem, they say, you know what, and write your check for that. It has to be market discipline. Otherwise, if you don't, if nothing sells, what do you got? You've wasted your money. Yeah. Totally wasted it. So the idea is the last thing you want is to get late into a small market. Where you want to be is early into a monster market, and that's where we are. Now, you can survive if you get late into a big big market or if you get early into a small market you can you can you can survive you want to be in that top right hand corner big market early yeah. and that's and you can say you know there's a bit of luck there we had no idea of the connections it causes diabetes for example it's the number one cause of high blood pressure in fact i would say categorically that a sleep test is more important than a blood pressure test that's where we're at now I, I published my first peer-reviewed paper in about 25 years with our chief medical officer at the end of 2017. It's still highly relevant. We, we said, okay, it's time to do a review of where is sleep disordered breathing going and how can we take it there? And more specifically, what about the relationship to chronic disease management? And I'll give you an example. Uh, I mentioned shrinks before. What do they treat? Chronic depression. If you have a bad night's sleep, you feel like shit. You have a bad night's sleep every night, you cannot function. Forget the Sudoku and the jumble word. You, you, you're jumbled. I mean, you, you're like a zombie. And so 80% of chronic depressed, chronically depressed patients have sleep disordered breathing. They have sleep apnea. And how many shrinks do you think are doing sleep tests? About eight in the world. Is that right? Yeah. I, I can give you a wonderful example. I was giving a talk about 18 months ago at Celgene in San Diego. And um, which is a big biotech company. And what I didn't appreciate was that they send flyers out and say, hey, we've got, you know, we've got Freddie the Frog coming in to talk about, you know, uh, innovation and entrepreneurship. And they supply, you know, beer and, and, and cheese and so forth and wine and cheese. And so I didn't, I didn't know who the audience was. I'm going rabbiting on there. And I said, and as you know, all shrinks and nuts. And, and, uh, and I talked about chronic depression, et cetera. Anyway, this guy walks up to me at the end of a talk and he had two women with him who were training shrinks. And I said, oh, look, you know, guys, let me just say, I apologize. I was being a bit hyperbolic. Anyway, the offshoot of that, and this shows you how crazy shrinks are. So the offshoot was that we were invited to go and spend an hour with the chief of psychiatry at UCSD, and, uh, which is a pretty good medical school. I mean, it's in the top 20 in the country for sure. So we went in and I took the head of uh, clinical affairs, a guy called Adam Benjafil, who's got a PhD in genomics and so forth. Very bright guy. Adam and I went over and there were about, seven shrinks in the room and when we met these guys. So we had an hour scheduled and it went for two hours, the meeting, and, and you know, diagnosis, treatment, consequences and how important adherence was and so on and so forth, which is with these, with these cloud-enabled devices with patients checking, 
we've seen like a 30 to 40% improvement in adherence. Because if you buy a device and you don't use it, well, everybody loses. You've yeah, lost right. the money and, and the collar. So in this paper that I was referring to, we, we said at the end of it that re- this is really the holy grail of treatment. It improves quality of life out of sight. It stops disease progression like the, uh, progressing your hypertension or your, or your or a likely stroke or getting diabetes. And the third thing is it saves shitloads of money of the, of the overuse of medical and surgical resources. And what we found in this paper um, when we were doing the literature survey, 175 published papers we looked at, there's a guy called Heinzer in Lausanne in Switzerland who did 12,000 patients who were coming into various medical and surgical facilities in the Lausanne region. We knew this guy. He trained at Harvard, and I sit on a board at Harvard Medical School, the Division of Sleep Medicine, and we knew the guy who trained this Heinzer. And and the article was published in a peer-reviewed journal, a solid one, Lancet Respiratory Care. The prevalence in adult males at a treatable level, not necessarily severe, like moderate to, to severe, 50% 50% of all adult males, and we were talking 2%, right? 23% of adult females. So you could add up HIV, AIDS, malaria, hepatitis A, B, C, and you don't even get close to the carnage caused by untreated sleep disorder breathing, and that's why I said it's more important than a blood pressure test. I mean, it's astounding. So anyway, um, where were we on the... Uh, Oh, no, 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 talking about innovation and entrepreneurship. Yeah. And you asked me the question about scale. Yeah. Look, you need good people around you. And we, you know, about, uh, I don't know, 15 years ago, I was looking, we, we had high turnover. And that's 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 a killer because you, you bring somebody in, you train them, yep. they haven't done a goddamn thing for you, and then they you either get rid of them or they decide they, they don't like the job. Yeah, but is HQ now in US or are you still in Australia? We're, we're still, it's in San Diego. Okay. in the People's Republic of California, unfortunately. It, look, it's better than Venezuela, and it's, it's, I think it's better than Russia, but it's heading that way. <laughs> anyway, no, it, it's, it's a great, crazy place. We do, we do 75% of our manufacturing now is done in Singapore. Right. Yep. I remember talking to Crud um, just as he was coming in to, the, um, you know, to become prime minister. And I knew him personally, and, and I said, listen, uh, I'd like to talk to you about a, a couple of things. He said, yeah, okay. It's a one-on-one thing at one of these Australian-American leadership dialogues, and he's feeling all sort of cocky, and, and so he should have at that time. And he said, so what's in your mind? And I said, well, look, I, I said two things. I said, you know, this global whining. Um, it was global warming at that time. And, and I, I said, you know, I've got a guy. I had a guy fly out from MIT to Melbourne, and ironically, Josh Friedenberg was there, and he was oh, yeah. the Minister for en- the Environment or whatever. At that time, he was working for Deutsche Bank, and I knew Josh, Josh fairly well. So I said, Josh, I've got this guy, Dick Lindzen from MIT. He's Alfred P. Sloan Professor of Atmospheric Sciences at MIT. Before that, he was a named professor at Harvard, and he did his PhD in applied mathematics at Harvard on climate modelling. Might, Dick, Dick might have known something about it. And, uh, and of course... Because he's talking common sense, he gets ignored, right? I mean, you know, the, the rags like the Fairfax newspapers, oh, let alone the dysfunctional ABC, what a wonderful setup that is. They ought to, they ought to private, close the goddamn thing down or privatise it. Anyway, that's a whole another issue. So, and he said, he, Crud says to me, uh, that's something I want to get right, climate. Because he, he, and of course, as soon as the election, he's on a plane up to Kyoto to sign that 
bullshit deal. Anyway, so I said, no, Dick Lindzen's here. And, of course, he doesn't even bother seeing Dick. But I gave him an article that Dick had had in the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal. And that's how I came across him first. Anyway, um, uh, Dick, Dick is, is wonderful. Um, and the second thing, he said, what's the second thing? I said, uh, oh, I said, you, you, you've got union backing. And I said, it looks like you want to turn the, the place into, uh, you know, another field day for the unions. And he said, he said, you, you got AWAs, you know, the Australian Workplace Agreements? I said, no, no, common law agreements. And he said, oh, you're as right as rain. And I thought, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So that's when we started. End of 2007, we started looking at Singapore. I knew the, the head of the Economic Development Board because I sat on a board with him at UCSD, a guy called Philip Yeo. And so he set up a meeting. We met with you know, five guys around a table. And they said, so what do you guys do, blah, blah. So we said, they said, well, I want to set up in Changi and lease a building. And so we did that. Our, at that time, our tax rate in the People's Republic of California was 41 cents in the dollar. After the Trump tax deduction, it wasn't reform, really. We, um, it, 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 we were down to about 27%. And we started in Singapore at 17% corporate tax rate. Then we went and said, well, what are you guys going to do? We'll hire blah, blah, so many people and blah, blah, blah. And they said, okay, if you do that, you go to 12%. Then we went to 10%. And in August of last year, we signed an agreement through to 2030 at 6%. In Singapore? In Singapore. Better quality, people like to work, no unions. Here, the tax rate is 30%. It's insane. So what do you want to manufacture? You want to pay 30 cents in the dollar or 6 cents in the dollar? With, with people who like to work. When you think about that. Yeah. Anyway, so um, that is – so any expansion now, we're doing a little bit of assembly in Atlanta. We moved our matter manufacturing from Los Angeles to Singapore. Quality went up and productivity went up. And uh, they're, they're just driving business out of the state. It's, uh, and I should have moved ResMed to Texas. We looked at it about five years ago. But anyway, so we, we've morphed into this SAS now, but we still, we're still selling lots of pillows and nasal masks and full face masks and so forth. And we're, we've probably got 60% of the world's mask market. So we think there's a business there. And given the, the prevalence, I mean, it's just astounding. It's, it's, and it's connected to every single medical silo from gynecology to psychiatry to you, you name it. Orthopedics, I mean, ophthalmology, because the oxygen is so important to the eye. Yeah, right. You know, it accelerates, you know, you know, retinal detachment is, is worse. I mean, glaucoma, because of these swings in oxygen. And, and here's, here's something which is interesting it accelerates death from cancer. So there's a study been going on um, at pretty, pretty the, University of, uh, the University of Wisconsin now for 30 years. And they started in, when we started ResMed in 1989, and it was 1,500 cohorts. And roughly, these aren't exact numbers, but roughly a third were on one out of us or, or an equivalent of us. A third should have been on out of us but didn't use it. So that was a control group. And then a third with no evidence of any sleep, disordered breathing or apnea. After 22 years, you're going to get a few deaths. You start with a middle-aged group of people in 1989, you're going to get a few deaths. Yep. And they looked at deaths from cancer, and if for, and I think it applies to leukemias and lymphomas, but we just don't have the data. But if you have a solid tumour like colorectal cancer, breast cancer, 
uh, prostate cancer, pancreatic cancer, blah, blah, breast cancer. The average time from diagnosis to death is a Gaussian curve. There's a few early deaths, a few late deaths, but the average from diagnosis to death is about five years with current chemotherapeutic regimens, colorectal, for example. If you have severe sleep apnea, it's one year. And we have not only those data, which are prospective clinical data because they were doing quarterly sleep studies. Um, if you take cancer cells in a lab in vitro and you do the yin and the yang of repetitive hypoxia, high and low levels of oxygen, cancers, cancer likes a low oxygen and an acidic environment, like low pH and low oxygen. So acidic and, and low in oxygen. If you spook the cancer cells, you get a, what's known as a transcription protein produced, which is called HIF-1, HIF-1-alpha. It, it catalyzes the production of a growth factor called VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor, which causes angiogenesis or the growth of blood vessels. So you take those cancer cells in a lab and you do that yin and the yang, they grow like topsy blood vessels all over the joint. And there's a little uh, black mice, I forget the name of them. There's a guy at the University of Chicago, um, David Gazal, who's got a lab with these, that he uses these little mice for experiments. They live two years in, domestically. Give them melanoma, it's about a year, half their lifespan. Take that melanoma colony into a lab and do the yin and the yang of repetitive hypoxia over a cliff. They're metastasized. Within weeks to a couple of months, they're gone. So that's pretty severe. And so we're trying to work with people like MD Anderson, the number one cancer center in the world, which is in Houston. Okay. And, and what, you know, the guy I worked with, the guy I met with there, who was a former Harvard uh, uh, medical professor and so forth, Ronald Opinio, I met him, I met him in the week later. I'm out in Houston and he'd been canned. Now they've recruited some guy from Canada who's a surgeon, Peter Pister. But I've got to, I've yet to meet up with him. But we're going to get this 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 thing going. Um, so so it's thinking about that, so getting things going. But at one stage, you need people to get things going. Yep, absolutely. You said at one stage mm. you had a bit of a turnover, right? So, and uh, and it was just really, really, really painful. You know, we you spend the money and you get nothing back, and and on top of that, it's it's bad for morale. You know, where people they said, "What's happened to Freddie?" And we had to leave him go. You know, or, or Freddie got a better offer or something. So I just sat down and said, well, okay, what are the characteristics of the people that are doing well within ResMed? So I just wrote down the characteristics. Good communicators, work well with their fellow men, have a sense of urgency, uh, good with customers, follow through and getting a job done, and so on, about... 12 things, and we use that as a template when we interview anybody. And we pick the phone up. You won't get anything in a, in a written reference because everybody's scared shitless putting anything down. True. So you just pick up and say, yeah, you've worked with, you've worked with Joni and Bobby before. Oh, God, yeah. Heavy drinker? Well, what sort? Yeah. Oh, single malls, yeah, on the job. <laughs> yeah, okay, thanks for that. Um, so, yeah. So, likes vodka? Early in the morning? Yeah, good. Mm. Um, okay, thanks for that insight. Um, so, and that, that really cut our um, t turnover down significantly, significantly. And so we use that as a, uh, as a template now when we interview people. So, you, so you're, growing, so you're growing the business. You're also coming back to Australia this week. Well, so, can you sort of maybe give it for our benefit of our listeners? 
what's your take on the you know, Australian business community? The, the engagement with uh, maybe government and business. You just gave a bit of a flip side a few minutes back, but and and maybe then we'll, I might ask you a bit more about the global market we're speaking experiencing in the US and China. So. Yeah, um, well, you know, Australians, I mean, you know, the education system isn't bad, but it's basically government run. Okay. And, uh, you know, it's like this climate crap where kids at school, you know, and they've got three-year-olds with these placards and so forth. And the question is, you know, if you thought climate change, now, do I believe in it? Yes, absolutely. It's been going for 4.7 billion years since the earth was formed. Mm. It just has nothing to do with man. So anthropogenic climate change is a complete crock of nonsense, absolute nonsense. There's not a shred of evidence that CO2 has any impact, measurable impact on climate. Maybe it increases temperature. And you notice when they say the hottest year on record, they never actually give the temperature. Isn't that funny? You know why? Because it's within the error bars. And when the dinosaurs were around, they're, they're herbivores. One dinosaur could take care of the New South Wales golf club in a day. So you needed lots and lots of greenery and you needed lots and lots of CO2. And from ice cores, we know the CO2 levels were, were between 8,000 and 9,000 parts per million and we're worried about 410 today. Give me a break right. with, this, with the same temperature. And you, we've got that from ice cores. I mean, <laughs> you know, so it's um, – and whether, whether it's doing proper science or engineering or, or running a business, enlightenment principles count. And enlightenment principles mean you have to be data-driven yes. and evidence-based. Yep. And if you ignore uh, data and you ignore evidence, could you please share with me your plan B? Because it doesn't exist. It does not exist. So I say to people, show me the data and show me the evidence. You haven't and seen if, any yet? No, none. Not in climate. That's nonsense. Nonsense. But we apply those principles to everything we do. And, you know, I, I say to people, hey, look, you've got, you've got your gut. And you've got a gut feel for something. Yes. And you've got your heart, and you know in your heart that something's right or something's wrong. Then you've got your goddamn brain. And if once you do, what you should do is engage your brain and look to see if what you know in your heart's right or wrong, whether it counts at all, and whether your thing in your gut has any relevance whatsoever. And if you don't do that, you're never going to win. You're never going to win. And and it's the same with anything you do. You've got to you've got to have robust a robust analysis of of, of what you're doing. And so we, we've developed, a, you know, a, a template for that as well. You know, you want, a, you want a big area, get in early, but it's got to be accessible. And if you can't figure out a way to get into the business, it's not going to happen. Second thing is you need world-class people. Now, you don't want to necessarily hire an MIT or a Stanford professor, but you want their, you, you like their brain. So you put on, put on a party for them, have a day there, and you, you invite in half a dozen consultants from, you know, University of Chicago, you know, Caltech, whatever, Harvard, and you, you know, the guys with a track record and you invite them in there and they interact with each other and you say, hey, guys, here's what we're thinking of doing. Do you think we're drinking our bathwater or not? And you start a dialogue going and you say, oh, yeah, oh, gosh, yeah, we hadn't thought about that. Yeah, you better watch that kind of that something could happen here or there or whatever. So you buy these guys' brains for a day. The third thing is you've got to, you don't have to have the money for the, for the end game, but you've got to figure out a way where you can line up the finance for the end game. Yeah. You know, as you come down the, 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 um, the, you go up the growth curve when you, when you come down the, um, the risk curve. Yes. You de-risk something, you increase it in value. So typically the way we've grown is we've bought, say, 
of of a company that we think that people can shoot straight in and they're in the right market. And then if they execute properly and the value goes up, and we we might go in at twenty million, and then the, the sales price is a hundred million. Big deal. So we've already got fifteen percent. The other eighty five percent we paid the big bucks because they've de-risked it, and we know it works. And we can we can push the boat out. And we've grown. We grew substantially like that, buying our distributors in Germany, Denmark, Czechoslovakia, Norway, Finland. We have a hundred percent of the Finnish market. The only thing is, it's five point three million people. But we still have 100%. Okay. So we've taken uh, Yossi Vueri, who, who's there, and we said, okay, now tell them how to do it in Sweden and Norway. We've now got 100% of the Norwegian market, which which is largely a tender market, but that's how we've been able to, to grow. So how do you find the international mindset when you come back here and talk to Australian business people? It, it's, you, you need the exposure. And it's uh, – I mean, people aren't stupid, but if you're not exposed to, to things – it's hard to guess and know what to do. Um, and we, I'd say Australia is way out in front in, in one area, and that's virtue signalling. What do you mean by that? Oh, well, any of the kookiest ideas, you know, with regarding gender studies or, or uh, you know, uh, diversity and inclusiveness and so forth, we're out there then virtual. You know, whether, whether it's a good idea and whether you even have a problem, you get in there and you, you want to lead the, lead the charge. Even the, it's like in the climate stuff. You know, we're, we're spending on a per capita basis five times on renewables on a per capita basis. What the goddamn Germans or the, the, Span, the Spanish drove their economy into the ground by becoming the greenest company and a country, country in the, the world. world. Now they're in the, the, their basket case. Yep. And uh, look at South Australia. It's idiotic. And batteries, if you do, if you, even if you believe the crap about CO2, if you did a CO2 balance and, and like how much CO2 is involved in preparing the lithium batteries for, for your EV, uh, have a go at, and you do a, a CO2 balance, you find that you created more CO2 than if you didn't go near it. But virtually, virtue signaling is, no, we've got to get into EVs and everybody's got to drive one. I sat through, I went through and we, we visited Tesla. What do you think? Oh, the, the guy, the guy's never going to pay it back. The amount of capital expenditure, he's, he's going to go broke. I think it's the best short on the planet. The only thing is the timing. How, how, how do you know, you know, pick up when he's going to go broke? And, and people say, oh, no, maybe Mercedes will pick it up and so forth. And anyway, I, I, um, I think. So we were on golf carts and we're going down, Fanuc, you know, Fanuc robots and God almighty, I look at this, I do. God, the guy, the guy's borrowed all this money for this yeah. thing. How's he ever going to pay it back? It's impossible. And, and then we sat in this meeting. There were a couple of Australian politicians there, and this area vice president for Southeast Asia. Said, you know what? The way you guys can help us, you build these these stations for us, where we the charge stations. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah, get your taxpayers to help us out, can you? And and that'll make life so much easier for us. If we don't have to pay for that crap, you guys pay for all that crap and you're saving the planet. Oh, okay, save the planet. Oh, oh, that's great. Yeah, okay, save the planet. I mean, it's just a bunch of rubbish, rubbish. And and by the way, I mean, I can give you names. I mean, Dick Lindzen at MIT, I mentioned Dick, and there's another guy who's professor of astrophysics at Princeton. His name is Will Happer. Uh, Will is an astrophysicist at Princeton, but he also ran R&D at the Department of Energy. Oh, right. Might have picked up a few little bombos there. The Department of Energy in the US with a multi-billion dollar budget. Gore got rid of him because he didn't follow Gore's mem. 
You're right. But Will, Will said he thought the ideal level of CO2 in the atmosphere for agricultural growth, et cetera, was 1,000 parts per million, which will take us about 150, 200 years to get there. But, but it'll be great when we do. This is just a crock of nonsense. Do you think we're all a bit too left down here now? Oh, w- without a doubt. Yeah, but, but look how encouraging the election was. Mm. I mean, I, and just shows you, I mean, the same happened with Trump. So what's your thoughts on Mr. Trump? Well, uh, I voted in 2016. My wife said to me, we were coming up to, to the wire to vote, and she said, you vote for Trump and I'm out of here. <laughs> and I said, I'll tell you what, sweetheart, you vote for Clinton, you will definitely be out of here. <laughs> Because I'm not a big fan of, of um, pathologic corrupt liars. Oh. But I thought Trump, you know, I mean, Trump, you look at Trump and think, mm, gosh, you know. So I, I was backing Ted Cruz, right? And he was the last man standing, by the way. And Indiana, it was all over. And so we ended up voting for Johnson Weld, you know, the libertarian group. And, I mean, that was going to go nowhere. I mean, California was going to vote for the pathologic liar, as was New York. Uh, but, uh, unfortunately, the Electoral College, which the... Uh, which the founding fathers set up, uh, it's pretty pretty good, and and it was a majority for Trump. I uh, I haven't met Trump. I know people who know him who think he's you know slightly crazy, but he's he's a very decent guy. And uh, you know, in terms of the, the, well, one guy, Stan Wachowski, who lives in New York, was telling me that he he rented a, an apartment, uh, you know, leased an expensive apartment from him, and he said he was sitting in a restaurant there, and Trump walked in and saw him. He, he said, oh, Stan walked over and said, Stan, how's it going? How's it, how's it going, buddy? So he's, a, he's sort of a people person. And, um, d- you know, did he pay off Stormy Daniels? I'd, we didn't elect, we, hey, we're not electing him as Pope. That's right. It's, it's president, president. And, and, you know, he reduced taxes and reduced regulation. And he got two wonderful justices on the Supreme Court. And that'll f- be for decades. Where, where do you say, is the atmosphere, the, the, uh, is everybody on an up or is it – I hear two things. I hear businesses up and everyone's oh, very no happy. Question. But, but I hear the country's polarised. So It's polarised, yeah, because the, the left, that's – you know, you've got get up and groups like that that are active and people like Soros and yeah. and they have these 501c3s, you know, that, that with these nice-sounding names like Open Society and so forth, and they're all left-wing kooks running them. And Steyer, who made his money on fossil fuels, Fair enough. Can I ask what your thought is on on China? Um, are, we, well, are we are we playing it right? It's hard to. Well, the question is: Is Trump playing it right? Mm. And I mean, I'm totally against tariffs. On the other hand, he's using tariffs as a uh, as a a blunt instrument to to get them to the the, the Chinese. The, let's face it; they cheat. They cheat. They, they, I mean. Your patents there, you, you can't go to court there and expect to get. And when every, any US business comes in there, you know, 1.4, 1.5 billion people, and it's a big market, people want to access it. And the Chinese say, you know, you, know, you need a Chinese partner, yeah. or you're not allowed to do a Google, you're not allowed to do this, and Facebook, you're not allowed to do this. It's not a free market. It's, it's, and nearly every business, the Communist Party's in there. And Xi Jinping is, has become the new Mao. Yeah, that's right. So, and it's, and, Huawei, I wouldn't let those bastards in. I mean, why would you? So I think you've got to play hardball. And Trump, they, they, you know, with this trade thing, they welched on some of the, I don't know what the specifics yep. were, they yep. welched on it because they thought that Trump was so desperate to, to get this deal done because of the Democrats and the impeachment and all the rest of them. And the Russian collusion, 35 
30 something or 32, 33 million on this, this investigation where they knew from the start that there was nothing there because the dossier was paid for by Clinton and the Democratic National Committee. Yeah. They knew it. Mm. And, and, and Mueller didn't find zero obstruction because right. he wanted to leave something because there was, there was something like 17 lawyers <coughs> who actually contributed to Clinton that were on the investigation. I mean, the whole thing was a joke, a total utter farce. But as far as China goes, I mean, Obama was a, I mean, this guy was useless. I mean, he's basically a socialist. I mean, he used to teach uh, rules for radicals, Sol Alinsky in Chicago, and he was a community organiser. What preparation is that? And an arrogant, and he set race relations back, in my view, 50 years. Anyway, he let China, in the South China Seas, let him build all those little military islands there. And now there's pushback with, with Trump and so forth. And then they're saying, oh, you know, Trump's getting into bed with uh, Kim uh, Jong-un. Well, uh, you know, they're not firing rockets anymore and, you know, they're having some effect there. Trump Trump is not going to be, be pushed around like, you know, so I'm satisfied with that. So with China, I think, I mean, do, do China want war? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, can you guarantee anything? No, of course you can't. But... Um, the likelihood, I think, is fairly remote. And is Trump going to get impeached? Absolutely not. They have no, they have no, they have nothing on him. It's just these idiots like, you know, Waters running around like a headless chicken and Kamala Harris. And she's about two, 2%, 3% in the polls. And then you've got Bernie Sanders. It's like a throwback to the 1870s. And, uh, and then who's running third? Elizabeth Warren, Pocahontas. I thought that was fantastic, you know, with, you know, when Trump came out and called a Pocahontas. <laughs> so what's what's going on in Europe then? Uh, Angela Merkel. I mean, well, first of all, Brexit. I mean, I, I think is an easy solution. And I hope Boris Johnson gets it. They voted 52 to 48 to get out of the EU. That's right. Why would you give the EU any money? It's all done in the private sector. So BMWs and Mercedes aren't going to be bought anymore in the UK because, because of Brexit? Huh? Rubbish. The, the the free market, free markets, free minds determine how things go. It's not government bureaucrats sitting in Brussels, and because they're trying to screw and they're saying to Theresa, "Well, you know, we're going to need a few billion pounds to, you know, if you're going to pull out here." What what messages would you give out to um, aspiring business people? Like you said, you've had a like you said, might have been a bit of luck, but you, you're obviously tenacious. You're obviously working oh, yeah, incredibly no, you, hard. You, you what, need uh, you know. I'd say, um, who was it, uh, Calvin Coolidge said, the world is full of educated derelicts. Yes. And uh, unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. And uh, persistence and determination are omnipotent. That's right. And, and there's no question in my mind that that's pretty accurate. Um, and I think you, you need to try to keep things as simple as you can. I mean, pithy and succinct. Um, you know, here's here's the target. You can't you can't saddle up all the horses in the barn and expect to be successful. So you've got to pick those areas where you've got where you believe you've got your strengths, and if if you've got some weaknesses there, then you, you fill fill in the gaps and get into the early into a big area and and make sure that you you take the appropriate advice, like getting bright people into a room before you pull the trigger and spend lots and lots of money. 
make sure that you you're pointing in the right direction and, and it's and it's making sense. You've got many things wrong. I think if you if you have a, I mean, you can't sit around a table all the time and keep having meetings and saying, "What do you think? What do you think? What do you think?" You you got to say, "Okay, here's what we're going to do." Does anybody, you know, or before you, you know, you've you've already canvassed people and you, you you think you've got the strategy right, and then you've got to execute. If you don't execute, you've got nothing. That's 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 it's that simple. And um, I think it was yeah, George Bernard, Bernard Shaw um, uh, one time said. Uh, you know, I regret that I have to write you such a long letter because I didn't have time to write you a short one. And you've got to think sure. it through and and make sure you can get things into chewable chunks that people understand. And you've got to be, you know, you were talking about, I think one of your things there was leadership. Or yeah, well, to talk through that, yeah. Well, you know, to me, well, first of all, um, I'm a great admirer of Charles Koch. And he's not, you know, they paint him as a, as a, a right-wing zealot. He is a libertarian. He, he's, he'll say, you want to sleep with a horse? Okay, don't scare my horses and I'm done. But you take my money, he is totally against cronyism because that's a form of corruption. And listen, it's the free market, it's free markets, free minds. And, and that's, but he, um, a, a book that um, I bought for all the members of the board and senior management, he wrote a book uh, in the early 2000s called The Science of Success. Okay. How market-based management built the world's biggest private company. And in the preface, he talked about how he was at MIT and he did chemical engineering, BSMS. <clears throat> his two twin brothers, David and Bill, did chemical engineering at MIT. And his father, Fred, did chemical engineering, although he was born in Houston from Dutch parents, went to Rice and transferred to MIT and did chemical engineering. And he started the forerunner of Coke Industries in 1922 with one of his undergraduate buddies from MIT. Anyway, Charles um, got a call from his father and he said, I want you to come back and join me in the business. And Charles was working for Arthur D. Little. And there's the Arthur D. Little, you know, consultancy in Boston and so forth. And there's the Arthur D. Little chair of chemical engineering. And Arthur D. Little was an MIT graduate as well. And and Charles was said in this, the preface, he said, look, Dad, I'm having too much fun. And the father said, fine, I'm going to sell, you know, Coke Industries, Well, what was then the pre-runner of Coke Industries, if you don't come back. So he went back. And then he said, I'm so glad I went back to work with my father because, in a way, my father taught me the fundamentals of what it would take to build a business. And it doesn't guarantee, didn't guarantee anything, but my father taught me the importance of hard work, integrity, humility, and continuous learning right throughout life. And it's not bad. Mm-hmm. And Liz Coke, Charles's wife, now Charles is probably 82 now, and Liz, I don't know, Liz is 80, and she, they're both fairly thin, and you know, they go to the gym, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, and they keep fit. Uh, anyway, um, Liz was introducing Charles at one of them. I've been going to Coke seminars for quite a few years, and one time they went, when Liz introduced him, she said, um, when I first met Charles, she said, uh, uh, I, I was wondering, what, what does this brainiac from MIT see in me? And, um, and he said, well, look, I, I want to take you out to dinner and it'll, there'll just be three of us and, and it'll be a surprise for you. So they go out to dinner and the third person was Friedrich Hayek, the Nobel laureate economist. And uh, Charles just wanted to, you know, get, set me straight on economics and the free market. <laughs> right. and, yeah, that, that was their first date. She's, so he's a pretty serious guy, but he's a wonder. He's a he's a terrific guy, 
And he gets up and gives a talk. He'll be quoting Benjamin Franklin, you know, and James Madison and Thomas Jefferson and so on and so forth, yeah. So your style of leadership is fairly uh, authentic, one would say. Yeah, yeah I, would, I would say, look, listen, you've got to be prepared to roll your goddamn sleeves up and be there when the other guys, you know, you, you've got to be, you know, there with the, you know, it's, you've got to be prepared to put your goddamn Wellington boots on and go through the swamp as well, you know. And if and, I, and and, if I and, do all that, what do I get back? Well, totally. I mean, there's no. You have to be totally transparent. Mm-hmm. People smell that a mile off if you if you're trying to bullshit. So yeah, I mean, you might have something wrong. So I I say to people, you know, six hundred whatever people, uh, where we're having a chat, and and I say, okay, guys, I said, please, there's something I would like you to do. If you think we're doing something dumb, can you please tell us so we can stop doing it? On the other hand. Some of you will look at what we're doing and think we're doing dumb things, but we should be able to explain to you why we don't why we don't think it's dumb. Yep. And if we can't, we ought to stop doing it. I mean, that's so. I, th- I think that's uh, I think the transparency and uh, what was it? Uh, Bill George, the guy who used to run Medtronic, the, the True North. Um, and I, th- I think that's yeah the only way to play it. And also, you don't have to have a long memory. You know, it's yeah. You have um you have mentors or believed in mentors? Um, uh, you know, yes. Uh, I I'd say uh, I mean I was influenced by Drucker, who was an Austrian and, and a PhD economist, but he worked a, a lot uh, a lot as a consultant for Alfred P. Sloan, who ran General Motors for like right. forty years, and Sloan was actually an MIT electrical engineer. And but and I read I mean it was boring as batshit but my years with General Motors oh. <laughs> anyway uh, it's it sort of painful reading it but it, but good lessons and uh, he said that I will not accept board members coming to board meetings not having done their homework yeah right and and so we I and we don't like that either and 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 so I mean you've got to have and we make sure that when we have board meetings, that the senior managers—it's not—it's not me or Mick or Rob. I mean, obviously Mick and Rob—we have the office of the CEO, which, yeah. which different to what we have here. Yeah, and also the chairman should be split up because here, oh, the chairman can't—you can't have chairman CEO. And of course, seventy percent of the U.S. chairman and CEO are okay. one and the same. It's just—it's a matter of who the person is and how the business is running. Character is incredibly important. Character is 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 everything. That's J.P. Morgan was being grilled before the U.S. Congress, and they said, "God, you're doing all this stuff." And 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 he said, "Gentlemen, I back character." And you know they were saying, well, "Why'd you get in this and you did this?" And was, as though he was trying to play fast and loose with the rules. And he said, "No, I back character." Yeah, a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. Your um your average day. Yep. So you up the crack of dawn, or what? What? And, and there's two parts to this question: how do you how do you, how do you work your day? And secondly, where do you take the time to think? Um, it's it's difficult. You know, the day. Um, you know, I uh, I think one of the questions that you were asking there was: is it, who's calling the shots, me or Mick? Well, it's really Rob and Mick. I mean, they're, they're the that's the office of the CEO, which I'd started beforehand anyway with Rob. <clears throat> and Rob ran second to Mick in the in the um, stakes to become CEO. 
But, I mean, Rob is 90% of the board meeting. He's sitting there. Um, and so I, I one of the, the big challenges for me was pulling back. Yes, yeah, so I, I mean, you, you, you're, you're involved and it's yeah. everything. And, you know, it's go, go, go. Um, so, and I, for a while, I was executive chairman. And then st- stepping down from that, you, you sort of, uh, you know, so we, you know we, we meet, you know, we have a conversation like once a week or something for an hour, half an hour to an hour. So, um, I mean, I keep informed, but I'm, I'm not in the decision making. But I'm chair of that. I'm chair of Arcturus, a company which is a messenger RNA and small interference RNA, and with the target being cystic fibrosis, NASH, non-alcoholic uh, fatty liver disease, um, and ornithine transcabamylase uh, activity, where instead of getting urea in the body, you get ammonia. Not so good since it destroys all your organs. But anyway, we, we got an opportunity there, and that's a NASDAQ company. I'm on, I'm on the board of Scripps Research, where we got two Nobel laureates, and it was ranked as by nature as the number one biological institute in the world, uh, and 22 or 23 members of the National Academy of Sciences. I mean, I wouldn't say that's great. I'm a member of the National Academy of Engineering. Um, but you do have to get voted in by the other 2,100 members. So if you're a complete screw loose, you probably won't get in. Um, and anyway, uh, oh, and then I'm two startups, one being a pathology company, um, which is cloud enabled with a little, little device, um, which is great for medical schools and so forth. And that's kind of a living dead at the moment. We want to try to flog it. And then a, a, a another company in, these are all in San Diego. And the other, the final one in San Diego is a rehab medicine. You notice with uh, uh, walkers, you give you give the patient scoliosis, yeah, right. like they're bending over like this, and you say, "What?" Anyway, the the guy who decided that was nutty, we all thought it was nutty as soon as he said it. Yeah, why do you give him scoliosis? Oh, gee, Dave, yeah, good, uh, yeah, good question. So you you want to stand up, and and you adjust the arms for the person, but we also have haptics on it, sensors. And it weighs fifteen pounds. Like this is this is weighs almost nothing. And you and you fold it up and you put it in the trunk of your car. Right. Okay. And we, the two thousand seventeen, we sold about a quarter of a million dollars worth. Two thousand eighteen, December thirty one, eleven point four million. We think there might be a market. This could be getting early into a big market. Um, and then I chair one other company in Boston uh, called Waveguide which is technology, it's NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance, and the, the, the NMR devices that are around now by Brooker, the biggest one, which is a Swiss company. It's about, not quite, about from here to the end there. Mm-hmm. And this one is this big. Right. And based on nanotechnology and the magnet uh, technology came out of Harvard School of Physics. So we're based right in Cambridge. And I had a wonderful experience recently. Um, we were dealing with the Chinese, and the Chinese were sending guys from Beijing and Shanghai over to sniff around. They're going to put 40 million bucks in right. at a pre-money value of 100. And I remember saying to the CEO, Nelson Stacks, I said, Nelson, um, they're putting in 40 million, and this went on for nine months, and they're sending people over and taking photos and all sorts of notes. And uh, I said, has anybody challenged, the, you know, like, how'd you get to 100 million pre-money value? No, I said, wow. I said, that's a, to me, that's a big surprise. Anyway, they pulled out and said, oh, we're getting, in, we're getting the software, firmware and software. We're getting out of the medical business. When they've got, and we'll probably, they'll probably be coming out with a little NMR yeah, device absolutely. soon. 
it won't work properly for a while, but you know, probably several years. But so we then um, had this wonderful experience where a group in New York had put in twenty-seven million, the Maxim Group, and the guy running Maxim Group was a bit of a sleaze bucket, but uh, he was one of the founders of um, of uh, Celgene. Anyway, uh, they put in twenty-seven million, and we said, you know, the Chinese have pulled out, and you know, we we just unless we get five million, this thing is not likely to see the light of day. And it's TB and ovarian cancer, but also good for foodstuffs, you know, like contamination of, of oils and and also for corrosion of boats and and maybe even in geology with Baker Hughes. And so there were a few potential outlets. And Brooker's even interested in, in subcontracting and buying these smaller packages. Anyway, um, we went into, myself and this other guy, Brian Finn, who was the... Uh, president of Credit Suisse in the US, we became debtors in possession. And that's fun because this Maxim group, after they put in 27 million, we, we asked for another five and they said, nah, nah. And we said, well, we're going to send it into bankruptcy yeah. if you don't. And we did. And we had to pay these scumbag lawyers in New York and Boston. So we went in and then Brian and I had to do 50-50 to keep this thing afloat. And I'm the chairman of the damn thing. And anyway, we, we ended up with a couple of really good board members um, who are putting, putting money in. So we've raised another four plus million and we'll probably raise another million or so. And I think we're going to come out the other end okay. So I haven't, I haven't really retired. Right. And as far as thinking goes, it's, um, it's on planes and, you know. Obviously a prolific reader. Yeah. Um, but if I read it, you know, it's, 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 um, you know, mainly, you know, biographies or human interest. I don't, I don't read fiction. I think the last book. Have you read uh, Elizabeth Holmes Theranos? No. Oh, it's it's called Bad Blood. Oh, Rupert Murdoch put in 125 million. The board had George Schultz, Henry Kissinger on the board. She didn't have one person. You know, this is the one with the, the pricking you're doing all the all those, and it was just a giant scam. She was from Houston too, by the way. And she went to Stanford and she even had the head of, uh, I've met this guy years ago, Channing Robertson, who was the head of chemical engineering there. He was backing her. I think she was a hypnotist. I mean, it's the only conclusion you could come to. Walgreens, she had the guy in Walgreens and Safeway, the CEOs of those companies. I mean, anyway, but the book is really... Refreating. Oh, oh, it's just, you just, it's like, and Tyler Schultz, George's grandson, was the guy who, and it's by John Carreyrou. Who was the Wall Street Journal um, journalist who blew the whistle on her? And you think, how could she get this far? In one stage, she was on paper worth nine billion. Now she'd be lucky to keep out of the slammer. Yeah. Now, Peter, if you were to um, look back at, back at that young man studying, I guess, engineering all those mm-hmm. years ago, what bit of advice would you give him? Would you, where you are now? Well, you know, I, I think I got lucky. I, I was going to. You know, when I was at Sydney, you know, it was, they had, um, you know, the general first year and I did zoology because I thought I'd do medicine. And what did you do, zoology? Yeah, zoology, yeah. Cutting up dogfish and cockroaches and so forth. <laughs> Loved it. Can't wait to get back to it. Um, no, but I, it was I, – so I, I took courses where I could flexibly move into medicine. And then I right, thought, okay. well, hell, you know – it's going to take me six years and then you probably end up specialising and, you know, where does it end? So I did chemical engineering and um, a guy I was there with, unfortunately, he died of um, 
leukemia, a guy called Tim Hook, he said, you know, chemical engineering is the arts degree of technology. And in a way it is. And if you look at, I mean, the guys that go into medicine, like in the US, they'll go into medicine or patent attorneys and and, and Jack Welsh, you know, yeah, right. GE guy. And, and I mean, that ended up as a goddamn mess with Flannery and so forth. But he's a PhD chemical engineer. And Andy Grove, PhD chemical engineer from Berkeley that have run DuPont except for um, the guy that was uh, Secretary of State. What was his name? Uh, uh, Are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, and so, uh, you know, mentoring, um, you know, I, I, I think just reading, you know, Drucker influenced me and Andy Grove influenced me. Um, what would you change? Would you say do any different? What do you... You know, I, I can't. It's uh, it's been a pretty stellar run. Yeah, I mean, you know, you think of things like, you know, why didn't I stay at MIT, for example? Would that have made a difference? You know, you know, should I have stayed longer in academia? I, I think if I look back, I'd have been out of academia a lot sooner, without a doubt. I mean, I, 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 was, I don't know why I was sort of hanging in there, you know, so... Is it letting down students? Oh, I don't think so. Um, but I was doing a bit of consulting and, you know, I was, I was sort of making um, a little bit of extra money, you know, consulting for Baxter and so forth. Um, but no, I, I don't think I would have stuck around as long as I did. I mean, it's uh, probably out of, out of, you know, I, I would have 10 years earlier probably got out and done something, although I mightn't have ended up in the sleep. Right, right. You never. So, and, and we had no idea how, how big it is. I mean, it's, a, it's just a monster. It is a monster. In fact, there's an article just came out in JAMA. I was just reading it on the way in in the car. Yes. Um, where um, severe sleep apnea, uh, or sleep apnea at a certain level and severe even worse, but um, in terms of, Complications after open heart surgery and so forth. It was two to three times higher, and so on. Yeah. So the, the data are coming through. So we we have uh, a reputation as being really solid academically in this field, not bullshitting. Yeah. Last thing. Yep. You don't believe in political correctness? Oh, are you kidding? I think it's a cancer. It's an absolute utter cancer. So we lost the plot, have we? Lost the plot. No question. I mean, it's, 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 it's. You're not too bold? Me? Yeah. No. I, look, people, um, you know, it's, again, it's virtue signaling. Let's set up a diversity officer and so forth. Well, maybe that's needed if you've got a problem. We don't have a problem. We have all nationalities. Listen, you, it, it's pretty simple. You do the job, you get rewarded, and we give bonuses and we give stock options. And everybody, everybody is everybody gets measured. And I think you've got to meet this this crap head on. To be honest, I have thoroughly enjoyed today's conversation. You put it out Agreed. there, that's for sure. And you've um, challenged some some norms and, and some I think uh, some needed debate. You've been listening to No Limitations. <laughs>